Coming up this week, we wrap news in the emerging game and catch up with Alan Kerr to discuss Japanese cricket and under-19 Cricket World Cup controversies. But first, a shout-out to our Patreon supporters who help us do what we do. If you're passionate about cricket in the associate world and beyond, you can help us grow from as little as $2 a month by becoming an emerging cricket patron. A shout-out to our latest patron, Ben Farnham. Thank you so much for joining the EC movement. To sign up, log on to Patreon. That's patreon.com slash emergingcricket. Enjoy yet another EC pod. Hello and welcome to another Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on Sport FM in Perth. Tim Culler and Nick Skinner will join me, Daniel Berswick, in a few moments to talk to Alan Kerr of Japan to talk all things Japanese cricket and the Under-19 Cricket World Cup controversies. But first, some news from around the Emerging Cricket world. Heading into Friday action at Cricket World Cup League 2 in Oman have held firm at home, claiming a win over USA and Nepal at Al Amarat after a comfortable five-wicket win over Nepal. The hosts were pushed to the final over, chasing USA's 178, winning with just two balls to spare. In the other match, 50s for Kushal Bertel and Rahut Portal helped Nepal overcome the USA in a chase of 231. We'll wrap the ODI Tri-Series in full on next week's show. Meanwhile, at the Women's T20 World Cup, Africa qualifiers Zimbabwe and Namibia sit atop of Groups A and B, respectively, with a final day of group action to come in Botswana. The pair have guaranteed progress to the semi-finals, with Tanzania squeezing into second in Group A. Heading into Friday, Group B's second qualifier for the semis will be determined, with Uganda currently in second. Also at the qualifier, Maeve Duma of Cameroon has stolen headlines, with four non-strikers and runouts in their defeat to Uganda. Scotland head into their second men's T20I against Zimbabwe 1-0 up in the series after a seven-run win in Game 1. Richie Barrington shone with the bat with a brisk 82-not out, while Safian Sharif starred with the ball for Scotland with sensational figures of 4 for 24. Paul Van Makeren is a CPL champion after the St. Kitts and Nevis Patriots defeated David Visa and Tim David's St. Lucia Kings in the tournament's final. Despite missing the final, Van Makeren took eight wickets in eight appearances at an economy of 7.93. And finally, the European Cricket Championship has begun in Spain, with Group A action coming to a close. Heading into the final day of the tournament's first group round robin play, Spain and Belgium sit in first and second, with the top two progressing to Championship Week in early October. Next week sees Austria, Hungary, Portugal, Romania and a Dutch eleven fight out Group B. For more news, head over to EmergingCricket.com. Well, if you caught the last Under-19 Cricket World Cup, you would have seen Japan feature for the very first time on the global stage. In recent events, we've seen PNG qualify for the next Under-19 World Cup and a man who will talk to us all about that and Japanese cricket in general, Head of Cricket Operations of the Japan Cricket Association. Alan Kurt, thank you for joining the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Thanks very much, guys. Nice to be on and thanks for inviting me. It's a great chance for us to have you on, albeit in not the greatest circumstances in terms of Japanese cricket, and we'll get to that. To bring it back to your story and how you've got to Japan, you've worked in cricket in multiple different ways, travelled all around parts of the emerging world, writing about cricket, discussing cricket. How does Alan Kerr end up in Japan as head of cricket operations? Uh, Yeah, it's a long story. I'll try and keep it as short as possible. Um, (laughs) So I was... 
a travel agent uh, initially. I worked at uh, Flight Center, which you guys in Australia will, I'm sure, be familiar with. And then I did that for seven years. And then after that, I worked for a adventure travel company called Wild Frontiers for three years. I'd initially always wanted to be a sports journalist. Well, actually, I initially wanted to have a career in sport, but unfortunately realized I wasn't any good at any sports. Um, <laughs> so oh, We've all been there. Yeah, I think we've all had some of that. Some of us are still dreaming. <laughs> Keep the dream alive, mate. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then I kind of, yeah, I said I wanted to, my two big passions in life were sport and travel. So I wanted to try and combine those if I could. I spent seven years at Flight Centre, basically paying for me to go to a couple of World Cups. So I went to the Rugby World Cup in Australia in 03, and then the Cricket World Cup in the Caribbean in 2007. And off the back of that, I ended up doing the Everest test, organizing a cricket match up at base camp. And off the back of that, I'd say that I wanted to change my sort of career path and go into more adventurous travel. So I left Flight Center and ended up at Wild Frontiers and visiting some pretty funky places like Afghanistan and Pakistan. And I'd already been to India once, but I went back again for a, for a month. And I'd sort of built up this relationship with Nepal already. So I spent a fair bit of time there. And yeah, that was a really fun period of my life going to these sorts of places and seeing the game there as well. But the company there was was a small company. It was great fun to work with, but it was pretty sort of low ceiling in terms of my career pathway. So I decided around 32 that I wanted to have a real crack at working in sport. And yeah, the Japan cricket job was advertised on the ICC website, um, stuck in an application and had a couple of quick interviews, which I thought went pretty well. Didn't hear anything for a while. Funnily enough, I was in Iraqi Kurdistan when I got the email offering me the job so that was a weird experience um wow so yeah i'd actually been out to japan to visit a friend of mine who lives here in 2012 the year after the big earthquake and tsunami so i had a bit of an idea of what to expect with japan uh, and then yeah came out here 2014 and i've been here ever since which is i would definitely say longer than i planned to be here but uh, i've got a, a japanese wife now and recently my own half japanese baby so yeah things are um pretty settled i guess uh, so since well since 2014, well at least in the in the time that we've been doing our emerging cricket project and and following associate cricket for a number of years, Japan has really made strides in that time, and we've seen it at the very high end at the under 19 World Cup level. But even on the ground, we've seen the development of Sano, we've seen streamed live events of domestic tournaments, we've seen the growth of cricket in the country and a number of international players who have come up the ranks through junior programs all the way to senior cricket as a kind of general question what do you think's been your greatest achievement as part of the japanese cricket fraternity and what have you seen in the last eight years or seven years that makes you really proud to be part of the organization well i think the job i was brought here to do initially was a specifically funded project from the icc to develop an entry-level program for junior cricketers for seven to twelve year olds the cricket blast program which is still running now (laughs) In many ways, it hasn't. How it's how you define success, right? So when that program was rolled out, the idea was that we'd have you know thousands of kids playing cricket in that age group, and and that hasn't happened. But what has happened is that the quality of kids we've had has improved because the kids who are in that program and who have come through, they've kept playing. And so when we put together the under nineteen squad for two thousand and nineteen qualifier, we had eleven of the fourteen kids in that squad had come through the Cricket Blast program started in 2014. So that was incredibly satisfying. And yeah, obviously qualifying for a World Cup is amazing and is hard to to top. But the fact that those kids, the majority of them are graduating into senior cricket, you know, the goal is to give people a lifelong love of the sport. There's very few people in Japan, very few Japanese people in Japan, at least over the age of 40 who are still involved in cricket. So it's still a very young sport. We don't have that, you know, whole band of volunteers. Uh, So trying to create the 
those has been great. And yeah, I think the achievements by going to a World Cup, we put together a strategy in 2018, which the, the Japanese roughly translates to, we want to inspire dreams that people don't think are possible. And certainly at the time, going to a global event was not on anyone's radar. Uh, it wasn't something... Our, our under-19 KPI was to have a team in a tournament. So winning it wasn't even on the table. So, you know, we've proved that if you, you know, if you try, if you put your mind to it, success can be had. Uh, and so I think that just helped change the mindset for a lot of people here. And, you know, we probably spent a lot of time focusing on junior cricket at the expense of senior cricket. Uh, and our national men's and women's teams probably hadn't got the attention that, that maybe they deserved and they thought they should have because we'd invested so much in youth but then to qualify for world cup everyone kind of got it and understood why so yeah that was really satisfying before we get into i suppose it is a controversy and and the news that came out over the last couple of weeks in regards to qualifying for the next under 19 world cup with a cancellation of the qualifier event for east asia pacific and asia as well take us back to the under 19 world cup experience in south africa i remember you guys got washed out against new zealand in the first game so didn't lose every game that's a positive that's something to, to start off with and while the results on the field the score lines might have looked a little bit skewed there were certainly some fascinating and important contributions by a number of players i remember shunaguchi at the top of the order blind a lot of the bowling attacks there were some inspiring performances with the ball as well as the bat talk to us about that complete experience because I'm sure your kids in particular would have learnt so many things about the game of cricket at that next level because they've give, they've been given the opportunity to compete at the highest level possible and they've been able to kind of apply those lessons in cricket afterwards and, and entering the senior ranks as well yeah the, the experience was absolutely brilliant of the group that we took 15 players and five support staff i think I, I was the only person who'd been to south africa before two of our players didn't have passports prior to the trip so it gives you an idea of you know what we were dealing with most of them hadn't been out of japan and so it was incredibly different for for everyone and we got there and you know you arrive into johannesburg and it's a long flight really long going via dubai but then you mentioned that game new zealand game they were I can't remember what the score was, but they were motoring along pretty well. They'd lost, we'd taken two wickets uh, and that was, that was great. You know, great moments to get a couple of wickets. And um, the game got, got washed out, as you mentioned, and we're on the, the bus on the way home and uh, I've gone on to Crick Info and I've seen the table's been updated and ours was the first game in the group and there we are top of the league <laughs> <laughs> and so you can imagine all the singing on the bus on the way back to the hotel it's like we are top of the league <laughs> um, that was probably the highlight to be honest um, it was great we then had a, a barbie and um, a few drinks with the Kiwi team uh, that was staying at the same hotel so I organised that uh, I was there as team manager. And so I tried, I wanted to do that with every team, but New Zealand are pretty much the only team that actually took us up on the offer. We did have a bit of a chat with the England boys after the game, but not, not back at the hotel. So that was really cool. And they were really good fun. But some of our guys, yeah, you mentioned Shu, I think for him, he, funny enough, the two guys who did the best at the World Cup were the two guys who had shockers in qualifying. Shu and Neil Date couldn't buy a run in qualifying, kept nicking off, but he got a 50 against Canada. Um, he took that the first wicket at Japan got at the World Cup and he's since been called up to the full men's squad so yeah those were those were great moments and certainly Neil getting his 50 was a real highlight Kento Altadobel as well probably deserves a mention he he performed pretty well throughout and although he didn't get the rewards uh, Soro Chiki did, did pretty well especially as he don't even bowling spin for six months he was bowling seam at the qualifier so he, he came on a lot uh, he's been promoted up to the senior squad as well Marcus Thurgate didn't quite have the tournament that he would have wanted he in the warm-up game against Scotland he batted absolutely beautifully uh, he only made 30 odds 
but was absolutely looked like he was going to have a day out. And we were all thinking, yeah, okay, great. If Marcus is on, that, that's going to help. And then basically didn't get another run for the tournament. <laughs> Kept missing straight ones. So it was a learning experience, like you said. I mean, the India game, playing a televised match, it was, yeah, with all the interviews and media around it, was a serious experience. And I mean, that match as it happened was played literally with the stadium where Japan got crushed 100 50 to 10 or something by New Zealand in the Rugby World Cup in 94, I think it was. That stadium is right right there, looking over where we were played the cricket match. So it was we, we actually did that the next morning. We kind of talked about, you know, Japan had had this massive setback in, in a Rugby World Cup at that. It's still the record amount of points conceded at a Rugby World Cup. But they kept getting up, dusting themselves down, coming back. And we'd all seen how Japan had done at Rugby World Cups in recent times. So we were just on the start of that journey, we hope. And we, that's why we keep needing the opportunities to, to go back. That's why competing in World Cups is so important. 2015 at the Rugby World Cup when they beat South Africa, that is all the inspiration and all the evidence that you need that stuff like this is so important in the development of particular sports in specific countries. So that brings us to the controversy that has ensued over the last month or so in that under-19 World Cup qualifiers in specific regions haven't been able to be held due to a blanket COVID-19 ban. And we saw the Americas, Asia and your East Asia Pacific qualifiers all cancelled due to that. And then based on the guidelines actually approved by the ICC Development Committee and the ICC Board, Canada the UAE and PNG all progressed to the under-19 World Cup automatically on the basis of them securing the most wins in the last five under-19 qualifying events in each respective region. Now, it doesn't take Einstein to work out that that is, I suppose, flawed in many ways because the crop of players that you have at those individual tournaments are different across those five tournaments and to us on the outside it doesn't make a whole lot of sense what was your initial reaction to that knowing that png had qualified automatically you guys had missed out after playing at the under 19 world cup in early 2020 what were your initial thoughts and and what was the course of action after that well my initial thoughts you say you edit out bad language so i probably shouldn't say them it'll just be a stream of beeps Uh, initial thoughts were bemusement and bafflement, really. So the timeline of, of how it went, there was a development committee meeting in November uh, last year. And we got wind in advance of the meeting, like a day or two before, that this proposal was coming up. So we went to the EAP office and said, look, we've heard that this thing might be on the table. Can you find out if they are confirming it or just discussing the options? We heard back from them a day or two later, the day after the meeting, saying it's been confirmed. <laughs> To which point we're like, whoa, we'd made the point that once something's confirmed, we know how hard it is to get it overturned. Um, It's basically impossible. And so it's proved. So we were really keen to get in and speak to someone before the decision got made, which didn't happen. So the process since has been long and frustrating and, uh, well, an up and down pride swallowing siege, frankly. But there's, there's two main parts of it. And one is the process and the other is the outcome. The process, I think, is relevant for all emerging cricket nations because it's a precedent that's being set. The outcome is obviously very Japan focused and emotional. But before I even go into that, I do want to make the point that I'm aware that whatever decision they made was going to be difficult for someone to take. There's always going to be losers in these situations. So I appreciate that they're in an unprecedented situation and that they were just trying to come up with something that would work. And from our point of view, had the same decision been reached with everybody knowing all of the facts of the case, we would have accepted it much more graciously or easily. 
the simple fact is that people who made the decision don't know the full story. And the big part of that, and that comes back to the process and how the process has changed. And this is COVID's fault and no one could have prepared for that. But development committee meetings used to last two days. Now they're done in a few hours over a Zoom call. So obviously things get missed. And I'm not having a crack at development committee because that's run by a bunch of volunteers, essentially. So they've got a very difficult job. They get sent a huge dossier of things to go through in advance. So they have a lot to discuss and it's only natural that things kind of get glossed over. And I guess this wasn't a high priority item. Um, from what we've been told, so we went back through the EAP regional office, who have been really good, incidentally, the EAP regional office have been there to talk to. It's, they're in a very difficult situation because, you know, they have to represent all members. You know, we've got us kicking off and I'm sure that um, Papua New Guinea are, you know, delighted with the outcome as they would be. And I, I certainly do not have any issue with Papua New Guinea. Like this is not about them at all. So we went back to the, through them and said, look, we need to speak to someone about this. We got redirected to the um, head of global, no, the global events and pathways manager. I think his job title is Gurjit Singh. Gurjit told us that the following three options were considered, which was performances over the previous three tournaments, uh, over the previous five tournaments, or the most recent winner. Those were the three things that had been discussed. And they had decided that five tournaments gave a more accurate representation of, let's find the actual wording, sustained commitment to under-19 cricket. Now, I find that a little bit hard to swallow because we have been committed, you know, Vanuatu have had a sustained commitment to under-19 cricket. We were immediately told the Disputes Resolution Committee is the place where we could go to. So we had that in the back pocket, but we didn't really want to go down that route. We wanted to speak to people. We wanted to have a dialogue, find out how the decision was made, why it was made. Did everyone know the full story? And I'll get to what the full story was in a moment. But there was no engagement. I mean, Gurdjieff came back and said, yeah, have to jump on the call. We went straight back. Yeah, let's have a call whenever you want. No, no reply. EAP came back to us. Let us know when this call is and we'll jump on it. Sure, just trying to get it set up. Nothing. No call ever happened. And so it went on. So then Naoki Miyagi, the CEO, he got a message inviting him to speak at the next development committee meeting in March. Didn't get much notice. Um, and he said, look, guys, I just want to make it clear that I'm not coming on to give you a presentation to present our case. I'm coming on to get you guys to speak about this again, because I think it's been glossed over and the rush decision has been made. So he, he went on, he spoke. And at the end of his, his talking, nobody asked him any questions. There was no further dialogue. Like, thanks, Naoki. We'll, we'll see you later. And then he was off the call again. So he didn't get a chance for any back and forth. And that's what we were looking for. We wanted to ask questions and we wanted to get to the bottom of why. So then you know, things progress or, or don't progress, kind of sat in silence for, for quite a long time, at which point it wasn't until May, end of May, that we actually got a something in writing from the ICC, which uh, the regional office had, had really chased, saying that here's an, a long or one-page outline of your issues and, and what, you know, what it's about. So for us, the biggest issue is that we didn't even take part in three of the last five tournaments. And that's not because there was some criteria that we didn't meet. It's because the way of qualifying for tournaments was based on opinion. The regional offer, you had to apply to take part in the tournament. And if you were deemed good enough, then you got in. Now, we'd competed in, in 2007, 9 and 11. It was compulsory to take part in under-19 qualifiers as members. So we'd taken part in all three of those. We got our first win in 2011. I mean, we got hammered in some of those games, for sure. Um, we were up against some pretty good players. I mean, P&G were red hot at that point. And Fiji had some very handy players as well. And so we, we had improved. You know, the, you know, the foundations had been laid. But then in 2013, our application is rejected. No reason why, no reason ever given. Same in 15, same in 17. So that was all pretty disappointing. And then the 
criteria changes. So you actually have to tick certain boxes, which we ticked all of those boxes. And so we're in. And then we come and we win the next tournament. And by winning that tournament, regardless of the circumstances, it does show that we could have been competitive earlier. The fact that our men's national team that Nick, you saw in Das Marinas, most of those guys would have been playing in these under-19 tournaments two years, four years before, because our side's been so young for so long. Guys like uh, Makoto Taniyama, Tsuyoshi Takada, uh, Kohei Wakita, you know, these are guys who would have been playing in these events and, and didn't. So it's not a level playing field. It's not the same for everyone. And it's the same if you look at Africa. Now, the thing that bugs me the most is that they've actually said, well, if you look at the last three tournaments, it's three different winners. Therefore, we had to go back further. That was it. That's the key point in their decision-making process. Therefore, the tournaments from eight and 10 years ago are suddenly more important than the tournament from two years ago. Now, we will go on to the fact that that doesn't make any sense because... 10 years ago, the players involved were eight years old. Um, So how is that relevant? But more to the point than that is it's completely opposite of what they do for the men's and women's, where any result more than four years ago doesn't count for anything. And there's extra weighting placed on results two years ago. And so when they're coming up with a process in case of a COVID cancellation, and bear in mind, they said that under-19 tournaments had to go ahead as if COVID didn't exist. There needed to be zero COVID measures in place for an under-19 tournament to go ahead. So that was never going to happen. So it was always likely that these tournaments were going to be in jeopardy, especially in the EAP, where it's all islands. You know, trying to travel is a nightmare in europe and africa which look like they might go ahead it's a little bit easier because at least you can you can travel over land if necessary but i mean what we then had was a bunch of decisions really important decisions being made by guys who don't know the story and there are repercussions to that and what makes it difficult to swallow is i can't think of any other time when a team has had something taken away from it and given to someone else by a decision off field this isn't like for example with the men's situation you know i'm very sympathetic to vanuatu and you guys discussed this on your last pod but vanuatu and the philippines were still sat below png so there was no title that they'd won they'd played for they played that five over thrash for second place in the tournament and there, there was no further qualification by coming second we've qualified for a world cup and with that comes extra funding and that is now taken away from us and given to another country so that funding there are fin- that big financial repercussions that have not been considered. And we've had an admission that they weren't considered from the ICC. And no one's going to do anything about it by the sounds of things. So that, you know, has blowback on us. That could affect our pro- what programs we run, what staff we can employ. And to say that, you know, we haven't shown a, a sustained commitment to under-19 cricket. Well, what have we been doing for the last 10 years? You know, they set criteria for us. They told us what to do 10 years ago and set a program and a pathway in place to build the structures. So the issue is that we feel we're on an upward curve, right? We are improving over time and we've got to the tip of our curve. Whereas you've got other teams that are just sort of fluctuating at whatever level. And it's almost like there is a preference for teams that are more established and have been around a bit longer. And that is quite hard to take. And we're used to seeing that in terms of full members and associates. We're not really used to seeing it within the associate world. But I guess there are bigger nations, smaller nations. And again, just to clarify, this is not P&G's doing. It's got nothing to do with them. But I I understand that there's been a lot of investment into P&G and the ICC probably have a a vested interest in them being there. Um, It's not totally dissimilar in Africa. It's good that that tournament is going to go ahead. But, um, you know, if it hadn't, then it would be, or if it still doesn't, Nigeria in the same boat because they've put plans in place. They've come through and done really well. But Namibia, I mean, Namibia didn't even play in one of the qualifiers in the last five years because they'd done so well at the previous World Cup. So it's just, it's kind of mind boggling. 
you're almost a victim of your own meteoric rise is probably not the, the best way to describe it. But given how quickly things have grown in Japanese cricket over the last two to four, five, six years, it seems as if it's almost a punishment for getting up to speed quickly. And who's to say that what you guys have set up in Sano and in other parts of the country is in any way, shape or form different than what's going on in PNG just because it's it's more recent? Well, the thing is, this stuff doesn't, like it's overnight success doesn't actually happen overnight right <laughs> you know yeah we the kids that we got playing cricket when they were 12 we have to wait six years for them to get to 18 yeah and be old enough and ready to play in these tournaments so it may look like a meteoric fast rise but it's been eight ten years in the making and as a, i mean shunoguchi you mentioned him before right he was one of the first kids into our junior programs he's been playing cricket with us since he was six years old uh, he went to a world cup age 16 he would have had another one in him not going to go now you know there are human tangible sides to the story which get ignored by the guys the men in suits who make these decisions and you know i hate being someone who sits and moans without a solution and you know i'm not saying there necessarily is a perfect solution to this problem but you guys mentioned in the pod last week that with a lot of tournaments being cancelled it would have been possible perhaps to use some of those budgets to reallocate them towards a global qualifier or something like that i mean as I mentioned before, when they when they looked back for the previous three tournaments and decided that there's three different winners, why have they gone back further rather than going back to the most recent winner? That would have been logical. And yeah, of course, that works out well for, for me in Japan. But there would have been some logic to that rather than just going back further. It could have been the perfect excuse of having a bigger World Cup as well, just having two East Asia Pacific qualifiers, having Japan and PNG, or as you said, a more logical idea would probably be a global qualifier or something along those lines where a lot of these nations at this level could compete with one another. So at least we know once they get to the World Cup, we have the best teams competing that come from that group of teams underneath the the full members that need to qualify. Well, and... I guess it, it sort of looks a bit like, I mean, anytime you're, you're deciding stuff without actually playing matches on the field, you're going to have a substandard decision-making process, right? But I, I think it sort of speaks to two of the big issues that have sort of plagued the ICC administration for a while, and that's just a lack of imagination and, and coming up with kind of more innovative solutions, you know, like you say, maybe a more an expanded pathway or, or anything like that. And just just a lack of clarity. It, it just often seems like, as you say, this this is evidence that decisions are sometimes made just kind of off the cuff and you know, without a whole lot of consistency or, 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 or transparency. And, you know, that's, that's really unhelpful. And I guess if you as an associate member are trying to plan around that, how, how do you build your team if you, you don't know what the rules are? You can't, can you? I mean, when goalposts get moved, it, it leaves everyone sort of scratching their heads. I mean, one of the frustrating things was in one of the messages we got, I've got this written down somewhere, it said that, um, here we go, I quote this, every decision is made after careful consideration of the issues and listening to the views of the different stakeholders in order to reach a decision that the board believes is fair and reasonable in all circumstances. Well, I'm pretty sure we're a stakeholder here and no one discussed anything with us. <laughs> so, you know, that's clearly not the case. So, yeah, look, at, I appreciate how difficult it is, but I, I totally agree. Lack of imagination is certainly one way of looking at it. And I don't know, it's just all a bit self-serving. Yeah, it was 
line in that press release as well that I found a little backhanded and saying, you know, member agreed protocols or member agreed regulations, which was, I felt was already trying to get ahead of what was coming in saying that this was agreed by you, i.e. your representatives on those on those committees when the truth is is less less sure that it that it is than that is, is what has happened. So, yeah, I... And as you said at the start, you know, there are two sides to this and it's that, that process. Yeah, unprecedented world understood, but, you know, around that, you've got to have some consistency in process, meaning that if it all happens again, you know, you're able to sit on the same process and, and be consistent. This is it. And, you know, Jeff Allardyce, we spoke to the acting CEO and he said, look, this is unprecedented. Never before have Global Pathways events all had to be cancelled. So, you know, we're doing our best here. It's like, yeah, I get that. That's why it's so important to get the decision right, because this will set a precedent which people could refer back to in the future. And that isn't good for anyone because how anyone can think going back 10 years for an under-19 tournament is a good idea. I, I still, no one's explained to me why they think it's a good idea. That's what I find so frustrating. And th- another huge issue that's come out of this, as I said, we were directed towards the disputes resolution committee. Like right from the start, we were told that's where you can go. Now, guess what? We can't go there because the disputes resolution committee will only hear the issues that need to be judged on the lawfulness of the decision-making process. Now, The ICC haven't done anything unlawful. Therefore, we have no one to speak to. There is no body, no organisation, no independent person who will hear anything on the propriety or the fairness of a decision. And I think that is a massive problem. Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up because that committee will be used by the ICC should England and India not come to an agreement with what happens in this recent test match that's been cancelled because England and India are negotiating that between themselves. Ergo, the ICC can come in after that and make a ruling through that committee. And if they have to go somewhere independent, they can. But because, and you point this out, because the ICC have made the decision, they're essentially judge, jury, and executioner in this situation, aren't they? Because once the decision is made, it's final, and they don't see the need to use the dispute resolution committee. And then we get the result, and we just have to live with it. And yes, that decision has been made where... They will say that there's been a lot of consultation, a lot of consideration, and that might be true. But the bottom line is for the players here is that they don't get the opportunity to play at a World Cup and come back two years later and, and learn from their their first instance of playing in it. So what is it like for you to, to go back to them and explain to them what the situation is? Because I'm sure that comes with a, a heavy heart, and that's a difficult part of, of what you guys are doing as well. That's the hardest email I've had to write, for sure. And, you know, the tough part is that I'm having to send this email out in two languages. There's a huge number of people that I can't go and speak to face-to-face. I can't really explain the details because, to be honest, it's I can't make sense of it myself. And to a cricket-playing, a non-cricket-playing nation, how do you explain this kind of decision? Everyone's just like, what, really? So, yeah, that has been really, really tough to go back to the players and tell them that, that, yeah. We had 11 players from the last tournament still eligible for selection this time around. And that was the whole plan. You know, we frustrated the, the Japan side of it. And, you know, this doesn't necessarily come into the decision-making process from the ICC's point of view, but this was the World Cup we were planning for. You know, when we put our team together and we started the process of building our under-19 team back up again properly in 2017 with a view to getting some experience in 2019 and then really challenging for the tournament in 2021. That was always the plan. And then, you know, we did better than we expected in 2019 and that was fantastic. But we knew we had a group of kids who would be hitting their peak now and they are. And, you know, you can't really 
say obviously it's sport you can't say anything with any certainty but we would have been going into this tournament feeling pretty confident and and looking forward to the challenge of coming up against PNG because you know didn't do that last time and Vanuatu who've who had still a decent side at that level and seeing how the other guys are going so it's it's really tough it's really hard to try and explain it and impossible to to really do it justice because I had to send an email out saying that this is looks like it's happening we'll keep fighting it but I can't see anything coming of our fight and I don't know, maybe it reflects back badly on us too. Maybe we, people will say we didn't do enough. I mean, we've done everything we can, really. And yeah, ultimately, it just shows that when you are a developing cricket nation, your voice doesn't carry a whole lot of weight. Is that the end of it now? Is there any way it can be wrangled to a point where there's some consideration again? I guess it depends if anyone listens to this, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, look, we, we've, I don't think so, no. I mean, we've had conversations, like I said, with the acting CEO. Again, I'd, I'd be surprised if anything comes of it. So where to next? You know, obviously, this has kind of torpedoed the you know multiple year plan with the under nineteen side. But where does Japanese cricket go, both in the under 19s level and you know flowing through to the senior level? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so actually, we're at the well, next year will be at the final year of our current five-year strategy. So we've just literally in the last few weeks begun discussions around what the next one would look like from 2023 to 2027. Uh, that will incorporate the 2026 Asian Games in Japan. So it's going to be a big strategy, that one. It's an important one for us. And we don't look at these five-year strategies in isolation. This last one has been the second one of four leading to a 20-year strategy leading up to 2032. So we kind of try and look at everything in, in the context of that, where we want to be in 2032. And those goals were, were set out however long ago, maybe ten, eight years ago, 10 years ago. And so we continue to work towards that, really. The goal of hopefully professional players one day, maybe some kind of professional league, even if it's just a, a short one, a, a Hong Kong Blitz style league, perhaps. Good idea, that. Yeah, we want to keep working on more live streaming, better coaching, you know, all of these things. We continue to build the blocks. You know, we're not expecting cricket to become a overnight sensation and, and suddenly the number one sport in Japan. But we want to make sure that we have the building blocks in place so that when participation does hopefully increase we can sustain it because what you don't want is suddenly a, a mass influx of players who want to learn the game want to take it up and we don't have the infrastructure to keep them so we continue building those continue building our competition structures our leagues our junior programs our women's comps keep providing people with opportunities to play the sport and hope that uh, when they take it up they fall in love with it and stay in the game because that's that's the ultimate goal really isn't it Got a uh, very pertinent question regarding your development program uh, that you developed the blast and 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 beyond to where it's grown to now. I think most listening to the podcast would we've talked about it in the past that uh, that all associates are, are graded against each other according to the the data from the census on the ICC scorecard and and funding is attributed and one of the major contributors is the participation numbers and, and playing numbers. But the challenge with that is you can only count one child in any one year once in a participation program and if you go back and see the same kid 10 times there's no incentive for you from a from a, a ranking point of view but how much impact do you get you mentioned before that you don't have the tens of thousands of kids in the blast that you'd envisaged but what you do have you've got a a small group of, of skilled cricketers that i would say the stickiness and keeping them in the game it sounds like it's been retained can you just 
give us your thoughts on that reflecting on what you probably thought was going to be a mass participation program with the emphasis being on a mass and how that's gone and how you balance the competing agendas of being marked against participation numbers versus actually getting the most impact and outcome for the game itself. Yeah, well, the BLAST remains our mass participation program. We still hope that it will be in the future. We still are rolling it out in more regions. I think there's, you know, prior to COVID, I think we had six regions running cricket BLAST programs now. A couple of those without JCA direct involvement, people have taken it up themselves, which is fantastic. So we still feel that that can be a mass participation program. That's what it's designed for, and, and we hope it, it will do that. Um, but like I said, it's then having those other next step structures in place because you know, Japan's a pretty big and pretty spread out country. So if, for example, there's a place down in Mie, which is you know a fair way from here. There's no cricket grounds near there. So a bunch of kids under 12 play cricket. They love it. Where do they go next? And that's the challenge really is trying to, you know, we're a small organization, as I said, eight, 10 people. We can't cover the whole country. And that's why we've targeted approaches to Sano and to Kaizuka and to Akashima. Uh, these, these regions that we've worked with, work with the Board of Education, get cricket in the curriculum, get it taught in schools. Those are the most important things. But to what you say, Tim, yes, absolutely. The frustration around the scorecard system, and it's no different for the senior men's competitions. Our senior men's comp is we have three, the JCL, Japan Cricket League, for the over league, we've got 27 teams across three divisions playing in a normal year, 10 rounds each. And that counts the same as if they play five matches each. You know, the strength of a competition is not relevant. It's just a competition. And, you know, when you're getting people playing more and more cricket, surely that's what we want, right? Surely we want some kind of incentive. It would actually be better for us, rather than playing 10 rounds, we should split the competition halfway through and rename it and get everyone in the teams to name themselves, give them a new team name, and then we'll just keep playing. And then there's two competitions and that counts as twice as many players. I mean, this, the program can be manipulated so easily and obviously we're not doing that, but you should incentivize stronger competitions. Likewise, these participants that you're talking about at junior level, they have changed it so participation numbers only count for like 1% now, whereas players count for like 4%. So we're trying to get kids... If we're going to see them four times, well, we'll get them playing games. We will get them playing games and scoring games so that we can count them as players rather than as participants. It's a simple, simple thing. Every time we do a school visit, if we're going back to the same school four times, well, we'll take some scorecards. We'll play a game at the end and we'll make sure it's recorded. And that's a, 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 that's a game. Yeah, modified playing. It's modified playing, exactly. And look, that, that's not a bad system anyway. But yeah, we've from the day one I came here, I very much believed that regular participation was most important. There's some study done. If you do something six times, it becomes a habit. So we had a lot of one-off school visits that we would do, but try something once. You're not likely to pick it up and do it for the rest of your life. You have to have repeated exposure. And so even now, eight years on, it's the same battle we're still fighting. But you know, some progress is being made and we'll keep doing that because that's, that's the job. And for some kids, it'll work. I mean, the one thing I'll say is I've done a countless school visits in Japan and every time I do one, the kids love playing cricket just as much as any kid in england or australia or south africa or india you know they love the experience they have a great time so if there was exposure to the game if there was infrastructure around for them to do it more often then they might do that and cricket numbers would be a lot higher so when people say to me oh you wouldn't expect the japanese to play cricket why anyone can play crickets just a game a question that comes straight to my mind when you're mentioning that about infrastructure and support and i think it's worthy asking it considering what's happening in the, in the news at the moment about the Olympics and future sports. What what effect would Olympic inclusion have on cricket in Japan? Significant, I would think, just because image is so important over here. And when you say that you're not an Olympic sport, you know, people switch off pretty fast. 
So being an Olympic sport would definitely help. Even when cricket dropped off the Asian Games had an impact on us. We were no longer a member of the Japan Olympic Committee. Whereas, you know, we're back in that we have like a social membership or something now and it becomes an Olympic sport. Then, yeah, suddenly we get access to more funding. People take us more seriously. Suddenly there's exposure. Like the Asian Games coming up next year, hopefully we'll get a lot more media exposure. And that matters. That counts. That gives people an incentive to play the game because, you know, you need to give people the dreams you need to give people something to aspire to and that's why these world cups or championships are so important um and when you see them falling by the wayside look no one can predict covid but what what else is there so what's next and, and how do we make sure that the dreams stay because we will have lost players i mean i talk about our five-year strategy at the end of 2019 we were pretty much on target to hit the vast majority of our KPIs, certainly in terms of playing numbers. Now, they've taken a hit, as you would expect, over the last two years. So we've got ground to make up. That's just the way it is. But hopefully we can do that. I'm sure there's lots and lots and lots of countries in worse situations than us, probably. You know, we've, we've not been too bad. But there are certain sections, women's cricket, university cricket, that's really suffered. And they're important for us. So, yeah, we've got to, got to get back on that. And having the Asian Games and, and, you know, Women's Youth World Cups is something that's on the horizon hopefully these are all things that you know you can use to promote the sport well in the asian games um next year in, in hangzhou and then 2026 in nagoya um you know cricket is a listed sport next year what's japan cricket's strategy in terms of uh is there a qualification pathway for that or or are you just sort of hoping that the um kind of overall uh, spotlight of of the games will highlight cricket a bit more I wasn't involved in the 2014 part. I wasn't part of my role back then. So it's new to me. Well, I, an email has actually popped into my inbox just before we started this call and I haven't read it yet from the Asian Games Organising Committee. So I should probably have a read of that. Um, but I know that the cricket side of the Asian Games Organising Committee have just contacted everyone to ask for their interest in participating and if they want to put in one team or two teams. And they've gathered all that information, which will then go back, I guess, to the Organising Committee and they will figure out how many teams they can or want to hold. Uh, I don't think that's been decided yet how many teams there will be. I mean, the format in 2014 was a bit of a joke in that I can't remember how many teams took part, but Japan, because we'd got a bronze medal in 2010, we got a bye straight through to the quarterfinals. So our women's team were sat around for 12 days with nothing to do. Couldn't really train because the cricket ground was being used for the other round robin matches so then we played a quarterfinal against china who'd already played three games so we were coming in cold and we lost so it wasn't, it wasn't great um, so i hope they come up with a better setup than that but um yeah i don't really know how the qualifying will go i guess we'll have to wait and see japan traditionally the joc have said to us which team do you think is more likely to get a medal and they'll probably only want to pay for one team so hopefully we can send both but we'll have to wait and see on that and if there is a qualifying tournament well you know we'll, we'll play in that i have to wait and see again all right now it's time to ask the real questions <laughs> <laughs> as someone who is a keen listener of the emerging cricket podcast and a friend of the show you would know that we ask every single guest if there was a law change in the sport of cricket what would it be and why i'm I'll let your mind tick over. Do you have anything off the top of your head or do you need a couple more moments to uh, collect? So obviously I knew this question was coming and when I first started listening to the show, I gave this quite a lot of thought and I had laws for T20, ODI and Test. Oh, wow. And they were good too. Really good suggestions and I've now forgotten all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Since we set this up three days ago, I've been trying to remember them and I can't, which is really annoying. Um, I think I remember my T20 one, though. So 
my T21, stop me if you've heard this before. But the LBW law was invented for multi-day cricket, long format cricket, to stop people sticking their leg in the way of the stumps to avoid getting out. The law has barely changed for 150, 70 years or something. In T20, if it's hitting the stumps, it should be out. That's it. Mm. T20 is the vehicle for growth of the sport worldwide in emerging nations. Trying to explain the LBW law is a nightmare. Trying to explain why is even harder. <laughs> so if we want to get new people into the game, like who's padding up to balls out, pitching outside leg stump in T20? You're having a crack at it, aren't you? Who's shouldering arms and not playing a shot mm. and getting hit outside the line of off stump? Like you're not, you're playing shots. So why give batsmen a life, basically? It's heading the stumps, it's out. I like how intuitive it is and, and, and an eye on, we've had a couple of these to try to uh, explain it a bit better in uh, new markets. So that's that's a good one, yeah. I think, you know, in test cricket, you can say the same, it's fine. But for T20, for sure, just don't, I don't see why. Do you know what frustrates me the most is that this was something they could have done with 100. Like the, the ECB had an opportunity to make T20 cricket better by getting funky with some rules that other countries might have brought into their leagues. I might have, that would have made the ECB relevant again. Mm. Instead, they came up with a new format, which is the last thing we, cricket needs. Well, the reporting was that they were originally going to get rid of the LBW rule altogether. Altogether, yeah, which is obviously bonkers. But yeah, there are rules that, you know, cricket's a brilliant game that's been around for hundreds of years. The rule that came in for LBW is not relevant in T20 cricket anymore. And the pitching outside leg something has, it's always been there. The ball always used to have to pitch in line with the stumps. And there's been one change to the LBW rule when they brought in the pitching outside off was allowed to be out if it's coming back in. But they haven't changed the rule at all for 50 odd years. Since 1970, they made that change. So yeah, I, I think in T20 cricket, it's just not relevant. I can probably extend that a little bit. I'd love to know how often a ball pitches outside leg stump and ends up hitting someone in line and goes on to hit the stumps anyway. You almost don't need the pitching out line stipulation in the law because the other two factors to the LBW normally negate any decision anyway. So Just leg spinners, right? Yeah, Ravi Bishnoi coming through and, and ripping through Japan and already with an IPL contract. Is... Don't mention that now. <laughs> Come out in cold sweats. Look, we've just, it's been an emotional roller coaster for him, Daniel. What are you doing? I thought I got over the worst of it. I look at it positively. I, I think if you guys went toe to toe with a player of that quality and six months later he's playing IPL cricket, I think that says more about how good you are than, than less. Would have been great if he'd bought a round of drinks after the game. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we let you go, Alan, once again, thank you for joining us here on the Emerging Cricket Podcast, and you've joined the podcast army in emerging circles with one of your own. Uh, before we let you go, tell us a little bit about, about your project. Yeah, so the Japan Cricket Podcast started off about a month ago, the Japan Cricket Podcast. We've had six or seven guests so far. Yeah, pet project, really. I wasn't quite sure what to expect with that. I think that hopefully it just gives a bit more colour to the personalities, the people behind Japan Cricket. You know, building a fan base is a big thing that we're trying to do. Uh, unfortunately, my Japanese isn't up to scratch, so it's in English only. It would probably have more impact if it was in Japanese, but maybe it'll inspire one of the Japanese players to start their own. I like it. Uh, it's one of those classic things. If if we can get, you know, just some small change to start off with and then it builds and, and snowballs into something bigger, it's it's an exciting thing. I've caught a couple. It's been good to, to learn about the game a little bit more in, in Japan, and it's a, it's a fascinating part of the world that, you know, we'd love to see cricket just explode in because there's just so much untapped potential in, in the area as well. 
Once again, Alan, thank you for joining the Emerging Cricket Podcast. It's been great to get your perspective on all the issues, especially in regards to the Under-19 World Cup and, and everything that came out of that. Good luck with everything in Japan. We look to that area with with envy. It's been great to see the, the growth of, of the game in the country in Japan play at the World Cup and at the highest level, albeit at underage level. Once again, thanks for joining us on the Emerging Cricket Pod. Thanks, guys. It's been a real pleasure. Take care. All the best. A huge thank you again to Alan Kerr for joining us on the Emerging Cricket Podcast. To keep up with news and events from the game's new world, make sure to follow Emerging Cricket wherever you are on social media and across the listening platforms. And of course, for any news, log on to emergingcricket.com. For now, on behalf of Tim Cutler, Nick Skinner and myself, Daniel Beswick, we'll see you next week.